We'll just read through uh, the end of chapter 4 for now, even as I said a moment ago, that we'll be getting into chapter 5. So beginning with 1 John 4, verse 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whom, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me begin with this question. Can Jesus be present and the people that he's with be unaffected? Can Jesus be with a man and that man be unaffected? Or let me just put it like this. Do you think that Jesus' presence makes a difference? Well, we might waver for a moment with uncertainty. But I, I think you just go back to the Gospels and think about Jesus present, about God with us, and the effect that his presence had in whom, whoever he was with. For the evil, they became more evil still by the presence of Jesus. For the godly, they became more godly still. Those who were against him, the presence of Jesus had one effect. That is, they became more angry. They became accusatory. They blasphemed. They plotted and schemed. And they picked up stones to stone him. So in that sense, Jesus' presence with them, yeah, it had an effect, a very negative one. The evil became more evil still. But the godly, those who had their hopes set on the coming Messiah and recognized Jesus to be him, it had a great positive effect. The godly became more godly still. In the voice of Jesus, they heard the voice of their Savior. The voice of their shepherd, as Peter said to Jesus, where else will we go? We hear in you the words of eternal life. And so after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and ascended back to the Father, the disciples continued on his ministry. And you remember the first time that the disciples, Peter and John, were arrested. And they were uh, accosted by the, uh, the authorities and charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. But the apostles Peter and John answered very clearly and very boldly to the charges that they were given. And the religious leaders, it says in Acts 4, were astonished because they perceived that these men were just common men and uneducated men. But they recognized that the difference was that they had been with Jesus. Can Jesus be with a man and that man be unaffected? Be with a woman and that woman be unaffected? Does the presence of Jesus with a person make a difference? The answer, I think, is pretty clear from the New Testament gospel record, gospel's record. 
Jesus' presence with a person does make a difference. Follow-up question. Can Jesus be in a man and that man be unaffected? Will Jesus' presence in a person make a difference? A lot of people, many professing Christians among them included, will say that the presence of Jesus in a person might not have a great effect one way or the other, might not make that much of a difference one way or the other. What will the presence of Jesus in a person do to that person? Jesus himself predicted great things. In John 7, he said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Will the presence of Jesus in a person make a difference? Can Jesus be in a man and that man be unaffected? Jesus predicted great things. God is in you, changing you by the power of the Spirit of His Son. You will not be unaffected. You will be transformed in very countercultural and very counterintuitive ways. The desert heart will be made an uppercase S, spiritual river. That is, it's going to be Spirit-fed. The wasteland hearts are going to be made an uppercase S spiritual harvest, that is, its spirit sown. The Spirit of God and Christ in us will make a tremendous difference, will transform our lives. So last week after the, the service, you know, we were rejoicing in some truths that John was giving to us. We were rejoicing in these two awesome revelations. I just think that they have to be two of the most awesome truths that have ever crossed a Christian's mind. One, God is in us. And because of that, number two, as God's Son is, so are we in this world. God is in us, and therefore, as God's Son is, so are we in this world. And so, someone after the service came by, one of our church members, and said... uh, you know, just talking about how awesome that is, but also, what a responsibility then. I said, that, that's exactly right. That's where this text goes, and that's where we're going next week. Because God in you, God abiding in you, being as Jesus is in this world, will have tremendous effects in your life and mine. So we're going to talk about two of the effects of Jesus in us today. What are they? Number one, fear is out. And number two, love is in. Fear is out and love is in. The Bible says God is in us. That's what we we just read. That's the theme of, or the refrain, you could say, of verses 13 to 16 in 1 John 4. God abides in us and we in him. And therefore, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. I, I just want to remind you, of who you are. As Jesus is, so are you 
in this world. So as Jesus had union with his Father and has, as he is one with the Father, so you are one with Christ. You have been united to Christ by grace through faith. And as Jesus had ongoing communion with his Father, so now you have ongoing communion and a close walk with Jesus. As Jesus is, so are you in the world. And we just have to think about Jesus' relationship with the Father to know what it means that we have relationship with God. So we talk about the union with God and communion with God. So who are you? Because you are united to Jesus in Him, because you are in Him, you are not your personal performance. Whether last week was spiritually halfway decent or absolutely abysmal, you are not your personal performance. You are not your past. And you are not your future. You are not your last name. You might like your last name because it's a good name in this community. You might not like your last name. Your last name might uh, be more like George Washington, a good name, or more like Benedict Arnold, a very bad name, or maybe there's not a soul on earth who has ever heard of your name. But because we are in Christ, you are not your name. I am not my nationality. I am not my ethnicity. I am not my looks. I am not my skill or my lack of skill. I am not my money or my lack of money. I am not my job or my lack of a job. Who are we? As he is, so are we in this world. I want you to rejoice in this. Jesus' record is your record. You want a clean slate? Jesus' slate is your slate. His righteousness is your righteousness. His acceptance and welcome before God is your acceptance and welcome before God. I am united to him. I am as he is. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul declared in Ephesians. I have been, Paul develops this thought in Romans 6, because I am in Christ, I have been where he has been. You see, what is true of Jesus is now true of me. I've been where he's been. I've already been to the cross because I died with him. I've already been in the grave because I was buried with him to sin. And I have already been raised with him. Again, I have been raised so as to sit with him in the heavenly places in him. I am going, not only have I been where he has been, I am going where he is going. I am an heir of God, an heir of heaven. I will be a pillar in his temple and I will reign with Christ on his throne. As he is, so am I. So are you in this world because God abides in me and I in God. Talk about grace. Talk about love from God in Christ. What a life we have. Man, we need to realize it because it just changes your perspective. What a life and what a future. So, I just have a feeling, I think you probably have it with me, that this is going to make a difference in me practically. If this is who I am in my position before God, bound, united to Christ, that's going to also have a practical effect in my life. And, well, who cares really what we feel about it? That's what the Bible says. Fear is out 
and love is in. So it says in verse 17, God abides in us that by this, with which verse 17 starts, is referring to God abiding in us. God, and ab- God abides in us to perfect his love so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Fear will be cast out of the person that lives in these gospel realities. The person who is living in the truth that God is in them and they are in God, they are united with God through Jesus, fear is going to be cast out of their lives. Because think of it. If you are in union with Jesus, like Jesus is in union with the Father, and you are therefore just as acceptable as Jesus is acceptable, and just as rejectable as Jesus is rejectable before God, things are looking very good for us. We are very secure. That's our union with Christ. And if you are walking in communion with God, if if through this life you are walking with Jesus, why would you ever be afraid to meet him on that day? If you're walking with him, why would you be afraid to stand before him one day? So, adios fear, which is probably the first example of tongues that you have heard from me in this pulpit. If we walk with him now, what happens to fear? It's gone. So John says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, that is God's love in us brought to completion, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John is not saying that we should not fear God whatsoever. Okay? We know we are to fear God in a sense. But there are multiple senses to this this fear of God. I got to golf a few times while I was in seminary with a couple of buddies of mine. And uh, it was just nice to get away from class and work and go out on the golf course. And it's something that I've rarely done since. But anyway, we were out on the golf course one day. And um, it was, you know, it was threatening storms. But um, we thought maybe we could just get through our game and, you know, beat the rain and everything. Well, about halfway through the course, a brutal thunderstorm came in. And uh, we, so we started walking back. We had chosen not to ride. We were walking this thing. And um, it, this was the kind of rain you don't even bother running in. In 30 seconds, you know, you're soaked to the skin. So running back to the clubhouse wasn't going to make any difference at all. Well, so we're walking back. We're single file. I'm in front, buddy behind me, and another behind him. And all of a sudden, I hear the loudest crack, the loudest crack that I think I've ever heard in my life. And the friend of mine that was right behind me told me later, he looked at our friend behind him, and he said, I thought that he was going to cry. We did not walk after that. We were in a dead heat sprint for the clubhouse. There is a kind of fear where people flee from God like he is 
hurling lightning bolts from heaven, an abject terror kind of fear that runs from him. But the love of God in Christ casts out our fear in such a way that the only cover that we run for is him. We don't want any other cover. There is no other refuge. There is a kind of fear that stands before God in trembling for the power and the might of his glory, but refuses to run to any other cover because he is it. And the person who fears God believes that. So fear is out. Number two, love is in. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. What are the effects of God in a man, in a woman going to be? Number one, fear is out. Number two, love is in. We love because he first loved us. This statement in verse 19 is nothing short of, I couldn't think of another word, um, sublime. <laughs> That's what the old commentators would have said anyway. It, it's, it is pure awesomeness. We love, and by the way, in the original language, it's left undefined. So your translation might differ and might define who we love, but it's just undefined. We love, so there's the vertical love and there's, there's the upward love to God and there's the outward love to our brothers and sisters and to humanity because we have been first loved by God. But it's left undefined. We love, for now it's left undefined, because he first loved us. Now, I have a question. What We've talked about uh, the different dimensions of the love of God in the past. We've talked about the Trinitarian love, the love of God between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. We've talked about God's providential, uh, benevolent love for all of his creation. We've talked about God's pleading with sinners' love. And we've talked about God's covenant love for his own. When it says, he first loved us, and therefore, that's pause, the effect is we love, what kind of love are we talking about in God's first love? Of all those different kinds of love, what, what love has wooed our hearts? What love draws us, overcomes all of our resistance to God, What love do we bask in? What love do we rejoice in? It's not God's common love for all of creation and all people. It's God's covenant love for his own. It's his electing love, his redeeming love, his keeping, guarding, covenant, steadfast, personal, unwavering love. That's the love that affects us so deeply that we can't help but love in response. Now, I'm going to step into some dangerous waters here. And it's a little bit risky, but I want you to bear with me. Because I, I want to make a case here for unconditional election. When the Bible says, we love because he first loved us, that's God's covenant love. And what was the first demonstration 
of God's covenant love for his own people. It would be before time began, in eternal ages past, where it says that he blessed us by choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Whatever you believe about election, and I know that everybody here who believes the Bible believes in election, right? Because the Bible very clearly says God chose us. So no matter what you believe about the basis of election, on what basis God chose whom he would, you believe in election. Now, let me ask you a series of questions. Do you believe that election, the act of election is a loving act? Do you believe that election is love? I don't see how you could or say it's not. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So God blesses, and in blessing he chose whom he would in Christ. That's election. Blessing, therefore choice. It's love. He loves, and therefore he chooses. Okay, so I think I've answered that question. Is election loving? And the answer is yes. Now, follow up to that. Is election conditional or unconditional? If you believe that election is conditional, here's the scenario. You believe that God looked down through the annals of time and saw, he knew who would choose Jesus. Uh, He saw and he knew who would believe in Jesus and trust in him for the salvation of their sins. And therefore, on that meeting, that condition, he chose them. That's conditional election. Unconditional election means that God, purely of his own sovereign grace, said, I want him. Had nothing to do with that person's character or performance, what they would do, what they would be, what they would believe or not believe. He said, I want him. I want her. I will redeem them. And purely of his own sovereign grace, he chose an innumerable multitude of every nation and people and tribe and tongue. So there's conditional election and there's unconditional. That is, we didn't have to meet any condition for God to um, to choose us. All right, so is election loving? Yes. Is election conditional or unconditional? Well, that's up to you to decide as you understand the scriptures. And number three, then, I would say, So is that love, which is God's first covenant love, is that love conditional or unconditional? Because I think that if you believe that this act of love is conditioned on what requirements I would meet, it's contingent on what I would do, what I would believe, then you would have to say that covenant love, and I understand you could say, God loves all people whether he chooses us or not. Yes, that's God's common love for all. We're not talking about that. Because in election, we're talking about covenant love. And there's different kinds of love. So what I'm saying is, what I'm asserting to you gently, good grief, it's past noon already, is that 
in God's unconditional election, there is unconditional love. And in conditional election, it's conditional covenant love. But if that's the case, if that love for his own was conditional, covenant love was conditional, that would not be first love. It it says in here, we love because he first loved. And we're talking about covenant love. But if that covenant love is conditional upon what I would do or be or, or what I would believe, that would not be first love. It would be, well, we love, uh, it would be, let's, I mean, you would, you'd be stumbling. Now, I know that's murky water. Some of you are saying, okay, what's the difference between the two? Some of you don't care. Some of you are struggling. Some of you might be a little agitated that I'm going into this when I'm talking about the love of God. And some of you are saying yes. And some of you might be seeing it for the first time and saying yes. And I I really want all of you to be at the point, because I believe this with all my heart, that you all say yes. Because people look at God's they, they look at election, unconditional election, as like minimizing the love of God. God doesn't love as much. That, that's not the love that I understand from God. And it minimizes love. I'm saying it's not minimizing the love of God. It is skyrocketing my understanding of the love of God. His love is so much bigger than anything I imagined before because He looked down on me and knew that I was a sinner deserving of wrath and hell. And he said, I want him. He loved us. He chose us because he wanted us. Well, why did he want us? He wanted us because he wanted us. He loved us, as it says in Deuteronomy 7 over Israel. He chose you and he loved you because he loves you. Because that's who he is. And so, he chose and he called and he redeemed and he pursued, and he wooed, and he brought us to himself. And whether you believe in unconditional election or conditional election, I know we all believe that God in his mercy found us when we were lost, when we were over our heads deep in the miry clay pit, choking down the sludge of the world and the sludge of self. And in mercy, he lifted us out and he lifted us up to himself. He loved us. And how will we not love him back? He loved us. And we love him. I am his and he is mine. He is in me and I am in him. Will I love him? So first, we love God because he first loved us, but we also love our brother. If anyone says, John writes at the last couple of verses, I, I love God, and I, I say this kind of in a flippant way, deliberately, because this, was, this is how it would, I just, I'm interpreting with my uh, enunciation. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The effect that Jesus in you will be absolutely transformative. There will be countercultural and counterintuitive effects. Because anyone in this world can love somebody just like them. And we know that's the way that the culture does love. We love people who are like us. 
Someone who looks like you, talks like you, of the same ethnicity, same generation, same economic standing, same interests, same taste, same life experience, is easy to love. Anyone can love someone who is like them. If God only loved those who were like him, he would not love you. And believe me, he wouldn't love me either. If God only loved those like him, he would not love us. Is there a greater, starker contrast between two beings than between God in heaven and man here below? Is there a greater contrast between two beings than that? I know we've been made in the image of God. God said, let us make man in our likeness after our image. But we know that we fell. And though not utterly lost, the image of God in us has been absolutely corrupted. So that God is pure and we have turned. For those of you who knew Joe Downing, um, you'll appreciate this story. Uh, Job died back in um, late 2007. And I came in at the tail end of his life. So I, but I got to know him pretty well with lots of visits to his home. And there was one time that I was visiting Joe in the nursing home. And Joe had this little mini refrigerator in his room. And we would check it every time we went to see what kind of supply he had of uh, apples and bananas and, and water and all that kind of stuff. So I opened the refrigerator to see what was there. And I, I crouched down to look. And I'm just assuming that, you know, everybody else, nobody else crouched down to look. Because what was at the back of this mini refrigerator, you know, escaped everybody's view for a long time. This thing, whatever it had been, was very black, very wrinkly, and very hairy. Whatever it had been, it had turned. God is eternally pure, and we have turned. We have turned, Isaiah says, everyone, each one of us, to our own way. So when I say that God loves those who aren't like Him, you know what I mean. He loves those who have turned. And so can't we love those who aren't like us? What, what holds us back from loving People and loving brothers and sisters in particular who are not like us. I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what holds us back. It's a heart failure. It's a complete failure to take to heart God's first love for me as a sinner. You see, God loved us who had turned in such a way that He would end up, after His work is brought to completion in us, He would be able to sing over us As my son is, so are you in this world. He sings that over the lives of those who had turned. So who cares what differences we have? Who cares what your brother doesn't like about you? Your brother doesn't like your music, your stories, your humor. He doesn't like your restaurant choice, your shoes, your hat, your sport. Who cares? We didn't like his glory. We despised it. And yet he came to us, strapped on our cross, and restored us to his image, and gave it 
gave glory back to us. And it's the one thing that can forever wow the human heart. That's how He has loved those who are not like Him. John says that our love for the unseen God is tested by our love for those that we see right here and now. So the more that you love your brother, the more you love your father. The more you love your sister, the more you love your father. The less you love your brother and your sister, the less you love your father. That's the test. It's not a difficult one. It's not a question that should stump us as long as we're honest. How do I love God? Well, measure it by your love for your brother and your sister. Answer honestly. Do you love your brother? Are you invested in your brother? Do you weep when he weeps? Do you rejoice when she rejoices? What brotherly affection is there? We need to test ourselves. We sing trust and obey. True. Test and obey. Test ourselves and obey. Because John says at the end of verse 21, we have this commandment from him. Whoever loves God must, it says, also love his brother. It is an imperative. You must. Not a suggestion. You should. I want you to understand this. Your love for the Father determines your love for your brother. And your love for your brother and your sister demonstrates your love for your Father. Maybe you need a picture. I've been doing one with my hands. But your, the, the strength of your vertical love determines the strength of your horizontal love. And the state of your horizontal love demonstrates the state of your vertical love. John goes on in the next few verses, 1 to 3 of chapter 5. If you turn your attention back there, we haven't read those yet. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Man, verses 1 to 3 seem all tangled up. And I I think that this is pretty deliberate on John's part. Because he's showing, you know, we've been testing faith and obedience and love all throughout this letter. And you see in these three verses, all three of them come together. So he's showing us, man, these things are all wrapped up together. They're vitally interconnected. Now we're going to deal with the faith part with which he starts verse 1 next week. We'll go, we'll make pretty good progress next week, but I want to stick to the love part. Okay? How can we know that we love God's children? John says, when we love God and keep his commandments. Well, how can we know we love God? Again, when we keep his commandments. And it really is simple. John follows the trail back to the head. And well, the head of the trail is this, receive God's love. He first loved us. And then the very first thing is you love God. And if you love God, you will keep his commandments. And if you keep his commandments, you will love your brother. But if you don't, you don't and you don't. That is, if you don't love your brother, you don't keep his commandments and you don't love your father. It's all, it's all pretty simple and it's pretty interconnected, obviously, you can see. If our love for God is set, I want to stress to you, everything else will follow. If our love for him is set, everything else will follow. And then John says at the end of verse 3, And his commandments 
are not burdensome. What are his two commandments? If you could sum them up in two, we would say, love God with all that I am and love my neighbor as myself, or as Jesus put it, love your brother as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you, right? Now, we all know that that's hard stuff. Loving God with all I am, love my neighbor as myself, my brother as I've been loved, that, that's how I know I'm a sinner. So how are these very hard commands not burdensome? The burden will be impossible to bear if you don't receive the love of God first. In all your devotional reading that you do, please make time and space to meditate on the Word of God. Behold in meditation the love of God, the glory of the love of God in the face and the cross of Jesus Christ. Because, what, you know, there's a time and there's a place to stuff your face full with the Word of God and to just swallow as much as you can. And that's been my devotional scheme for the last four years, um, getting in as much as I can in a single sitting. Uh, I'll tell you some other time about the change that I've made lately. But anyway, I finished up the plan that I've been on, done twice last, you know, anyway. Um, and now I'm meditating. And of course, a preacher meditates on the Word of God all the time. Basically, what you get every Sunday morning is what I've already taken in, chewed up, and swallowed, and you're just chewing on and swallowing what I'm regurgitating, which is a, a beautiful picture. So uh, a preacher meditates on the Word of God all the time. I mean, we have to. But you need to meditate on the Word of God. Get a vision of the love of God constantly before your eyes. Savor it. Chew on it for a while. Fill your gut with it and get it down right into your bones. Because what will happen when you receive the love of God? You will burst. It will be uncontainable. That will be the river, the spiritual river that the Holy Spirit Himself affects in every desert heart. And the river of love will overflow the banks and it will head out in all unbiased and unprejudiced directions. Just like a river. You know, we've seen a lot of flooding in Louisiana. A river floods its banks and it just goes out indiscriminately. Wherever it can reach, it goes in. If it can reach that house, it's going in that house. That's like the love of God. As a river, it goes over its banks and then it goes out in unbiased and unprejudiced directions. You will burst. The Bible says you are, I want to remind you, you are as He is, in the world already, you are as Jesus is. But as you, meditating, behold the glory of the love of God in the face and in the cross of Jesus Christ, you will become more of what you are. You are as He is. You will become more of what you are. That's the growth of the Christian life. That is, you will become more and more like Him. But you have to keep the love of God for you, always before you and in you, meditating upon it. And so, 
as you receive the love of God and return love to Him, it will overflow, spreading out in all unbiased directions. Because as the text says, the one who loves the Father loves whoever. Loves whoever has been born of Him. We have differences, you and I. We have differences. We have gaps between us. We have tons of them. Some of you are older generation women who love Southern Gospel music and turnip greens and wouldn't know the Toronto Blue Jays from the New York Yankees. And some of those things I find deeply offensive. (laughs) You know me. You can figure out which ones they are. So we have differences. In this family, there are income level differences. There are generational and there are cultural differences. There are personality and preference differences. All these differences, all these gaps. But the gospel of Jesus Christ closes up every single one of them. Even the doctrinal differences, which I might have got into earlier. The gospel closes those because the gospel is fundamental. And you are not ultimately what you believe about election. You are not ultimately what generation you belong to. You're not ultimately whether you love turnip greens or can't stand them. Or don't know the Blue Jays from the Yankees, which is just, I don't understand that. But anyway, that's not who you ultimately are. Who are you? As he is, so are you. And as he is, so am I. That's who I ultimately am. Who Jesus is. That's who you are. All of a sudden, every gap between us is closed. And we can love like we have been loved. The word is good. God is good. May God bring unity and harmony to this church that is just a witness to the world of how God has loved us in His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your great love for us in Jesus. Began in in eternity past. will see us through to glory. will change us finally perfectly into His image and We know that in the coming ages you will show to us the immeasurable riches of the kindness of your grace in Christ. Life is hard and it's good. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Our future is good. And Father, I pray that your great love for us in Jesus would transform us, putting out our fear, and just spurring us on to love in ways that are completely unnatural for us. Do this in us. Make this change. Transform us. Make us like your son. We ask in his name. Amen.